You are listening to the Well and Simple Podcast with your host, Marissa Zabo. Hello and welcome to the Well and Simple Podcast. I'm your host, Marissa Zabo. Um, All right, this week I'm really excited. I'm going to be talking about the Minnesota Starvation Experiment and low calorie diets. So this should be very interesting and I think really enlightening. Um, And again, really interesting because um, we bought espresso instead of coffee this week and um, we don't have an espresso machine. So we just brewed a pot of espresso like we would coffee. And that's what I'm drinking right now as I'm recording this episode. So This might be the shortest episode ever while also containing the most amount of information because I don't actually know how fast I'm talking right now. So bear with me. Um, This is also one of my favorite things to talk about. It's super nerdy, (laughs) but it also, I think, really kind of gets to the heart of my beef with all of these low-calorie diets that are out there. Um, Hmm. I will say brewing a pot of espresso, it does taste really good. Um, I think maybe more so than straight up espresso if you don't really like that kind of intense bitter flavor. So pro tip, um, probably not the healthiest thing, but this is where we're at. So I want to start by talking about the Minnesota starvation experiment. And then we're going to get into some locale diets and like what you need to know about them. Because I think that, I mean, so many of us have done them, right? And there's so many iterations of low calorie diets, right? I mean, Weight Watchers is a classic example of one or WW as they've rebranded themselves. Um, But even some of the other diets that we think of like intermittent fasting, even, you know, like the low carb type diets, you know, even though we classify them differently as like low carb diets, essentially what is still happening is still calorie restriction. And so it's kind of misleading to not call them low calorie diets, but in effect, that's essentially what is going on. It's just not as obvious and it's not the focus of those diets. Um, But I think we've, we've pretty much all, I'm pretty sure pretty much everyone listening to this, including myself has done a low calorie diet at one point or another in our life. And we've really been conditioned to think of, you know, weight loss in terms of calories in calories out and that all calories are created equal, right? Because they're all treated equally by different low calorie diets. But the fact of the matter is that weight loss is not as simple as calories in calories out. Neither is weight gain. And, um, all calories are not created equal. Um, all food is not digested the same, digested the same way by our body. So we may get into that a little bit as well. I don't want to get too nitty gritty and sciencey though. Um, I haven't had that much espresso coffee mug thing yet. So (laughs) we'll see how far we get, but let's start with the Minnesota starvation experiment. Not a lot of people have heard about this, and I think more people need to, which is why I really want to open with this today. So let's talk about what it was. So first of all, it was first published in 1950. It's 1,400 pages long. So I'm going to flat out say I have not read this entire report because 
1400 pages is a lot, but some people have, and there's actually a lot of great information on the internet about it. So I've done a lot of research about it, have not actually delved into the actual report because again, 1400 pages, that smashing sound is my dog throwing around one of his toys. I'm going to take it away. Hang on. Okay. Puppy has been dealt with. Most of the time he's quiet. It's just when I'm doing things that he finds the noisiest toy that he has and either squeaks it or throws it around. So back to the Minnesota starvation experiment. Um, okay. So it took place back in 1944 and this was during World War II. And at that point in time, there actually had been no scientific study of the effects of starvation on the human body, you know, other than like people die. Um, and there definitely had been no study on how to successfully and healthfully rehabilitate somebody from starvation. And this point in time during World War One was really a prime time to start looking at this because famine was a widespread issue at that point in time in many, many countries across the globe. And so this group of scientists um, wanted to learn a bit more about that because clearly this was going to be something that needed to be dealt with. And so how did the study work? So basically what they did was they gathered a group of study participants. Uh, they were conscientious objectors, obviously because they're the draft during World War II. Um, and they ended up with 36 men to participate in this study. And you can guess they were white cisgendered men per usual. So they had these 36 men and then they divided the study up into three parts. So for the first portion of the study, it was 12 weeks long and it was just normal living and eating. And this, every aspect of this study, stage one, two, and three was heavily controlled and monitored. So how much food they ate per day, they were all given the same number of calories per day. They were given the same levels of exercise and it was all very closely monitored and controlled, as I said. So this first phase was just normal eating and living. They were given plenty of food. Um, <clears throat> and basically the point of this first portion of the study was to get that control data. So this is baseline. This is what is considered normal for these gentlemen. And we're going to see what happens from here. So that was the first part. The second part of the study was the semi-starvation period. So this was 24 weeks long, and this is where they slashed their calories down to this semi-starvation point. Obviously, like they couldn't flat out starve people because, you know, ethics, <laughs> you can't do that. Um, so, but their calories were slashed dramatically. And um, they were also instructed to continue the regular physical activity patterns. So that stayed the same, right? Just like if you were somebody who was living in a country suffering from famine, you wouldn't have as much food to eat, but you would still be as, you know, expected to and forced to on some level continue doing the same activities of daily life that you were doing before. So really kind of mimicking that harsh reality there. 
And the food that they were given under this low calorie period was really similar to what people in Europe were likely eating. So they were very rich in carbohydrates, very low in protein. So things like macaroni, potatoes, cabbage, those kinds of things were what these men were eating during those 24 weeks. And then after those 24 weeks were up, there were 12 weeks of restricted and controlled refeeding. So where they were gradually given more and more food and then eight weeks of unrestricted refeeding where they could eat as much as they wanted. So those were the three phases of the study. It's interesting. All right. I really, let's talk about the impacts that they observed during this period. So during the semi-starvation period, the participants dropped to approximately 30% of their control body fat. So on average, they lost about 30% of the body fat that they started with. And their strength decreased by over 20% in that period. What else happened? Their heart rates slowed down dramatically. So uh, their average low was about 55 beats per minute. And that dropped to about 35 beats per minute. And this is indicative of the metabolism slowing down in response to decreased energy for the body. That's what happens when you're on any low calorie diet, right? We, when we've seen this with the big, the biggest loser study that made headlines several years ago, that when you cut calories, your body is going to compensate for that because it thinks it's starving. And so it slows everything down. Your heartbeat is one of those things that gets slowed down. So we saw this in these study participants. Let's see here. What else? So there were some other indicators that show this decrease in metabolism here. So their blood volume actually decreased. So actually having less blood pumping through their, their veins, their heart actually decreased in size and so did their blood vessels. So like, this is what you see when you are not sufficiently feeding your body here. It's signs and symptoms of your body trying to save itself from starvation. There was some hair loss. Um, and I've heard this from people who have done low calorie diets, especially if they're not consuming enough protein, they start losing their hair. Um, they also noticed that they were less coordinated. Um, they felt sore a lot more. Um, they weren't as comfortable sitting down, which makes sense, right? If you have less cushion for the cushion, right? <laughs> it's going to be not as comfortable putting your like butt bones on a chair, right? Um, and then obviously they also experienced getting colder a lot more easily, right? You got a little less insulation there. So those were the physiological, like measurable and um, subjective changes that were observed during this study. What about psychological and behavioral changes? These were really dramatic. Um, you think about being hangry, it's a legit thing. And that was definitely experienced by all of the participants during this period. Um, but there were other things that they experienced as well. For example, a significant decrease in libido was reported by pretty much all participants. They were cranky. They constantly felt tired. Obviously, they weren't consuming enough energy for their body. And they became obsessed with food. So participants reported 
they would dream about food. Their major topic of conversation was food. They would pour over cookbooks like it was porn, looking at the photos of food. It became their big, huge preoccupation. Um, one of the study participants actually admitted to having cannibalistic fantasies during this period and got caught like sneaking out to get food and ended up being like institutionalized for a short period of time because of those cannibalistic fantasies. Um, that was one participant and he was taken care of appropriately. Um, so that was a bit extreme, but they all experienced this obsession with food. Um, Interestingly, um, they were given um, as much coffee as they wanted and as much gum as they wanted during this period. And we see this a lot with low calorie diets, right? Because coffee is a freebie as long as you're not putting anything in it. And how often have you heard people say, well, when you're feeling hungry, just chew some gum, right? So they were given as much gum as they wanted as well. And they would chew up to 40 packs of gum a day and drink up to 15 cups of coffee a day, right? As I sit here drinking my espresso coffee like crazy. So that like desperate attempt to, to kind of compensate and distract the body from the fact that eating was not happening. They reported really high rates of depression and, um, <clears throat> interestingly, they didn't perceive themselves as too skinny. Um, but instead they thought that other people looked bigger than they had before, um, which is um, very interesting and has actually been demonstrated in people um, suffering with various eating disorders. Um, so that was also something that was observed in these men. <clears throat> so let's see. So those were the impacts that were observed by the research team during the semi-starvation period of this, <clears throat> excuse me, experiment. And then the refeeding period happened and mostly things went back to normal, right? Their mood balanced out again. They regained, you know, the weight that they had lost. They, um, you know, they're libido came back, you know, strength comes back gradually, that kind of thing. Um, so they noticed that improvements in those types of measures here, but psychologically, there was some very interesting findings. First, um, many of the participants reported having abnormal eating patterns for months or years after this study. So they didn't get back to the way they were eating previously. And they actually maintained a higher than normal body weight for quite a while before they kind of leveled back out and got back to the weight that they started with before the study. And <clears throat> some participants maintained a level of food insecurity for a number of years following the study. So basically what would be observed is this, this what's known as last supper eating. And we see this with people who diet chronically as well. You know, diet starts on Monday, they gorge themselves on all of their favorites beforehand, because they don't know when the next opportunity is going to be that they get to eat those foods. Or if they're actively on a diet, and it's like a holiday or something like that, 
and they allow themselves to, you know, they give themselves a pass to indulge on that day. And then they end up eating way more than they planned to or wanted to. Again, this last supper eating mentality. And so this was something that was demonstrated by the study participants long afterwards because they were fearful of being in a position where food would not be readily available to them again, or being in a position where food could be taken away from them again. And this is a conscious and subconscious type thing. And um, obviously this almost definitely contributed to some of the abnormal eating patterns that many of their participants reported following the study months and years later. So those were kind of the lingering psychological effects after the refeeding, after the study ended, after these guys went back to whatever their life was prior to this. Now, interestingly, in 1997, researchers at the University of Switzerland went back and reanalyzed the data from this study. And what they found was that <clears throat> after the study, the participants' body fat returned to 100% of the levels it was at before the starvation period. But their pre-starvation period lean body mass or muscle, if you want to think of it that way, um, did not return to 100% as the body fat did. So they gained back all of their body fat, but they were not able to gain back all of their muscle, right? So <clears throat> that is also something that, you know, I think is interesting to consider in light of the biggest loser, you know, study. And in light of all of this bad press that low calorie diets have been getting and the fact that on average, people who diet will regain the weight that they lost and then some. <clears throat> muscle is something that increases our metabolism. The more muscle we have, the higher metabolism we have, the more energy burn that we have. If you lose a significant amount of weight and then you are able to gain back all of your fat, but you are not able to gain back that muscle, then you are going to have a deficit in your metabolism. This makes sense, right? <clears throat> so over time, they were eventually able to gain back the muscle mass that they had prior to this semi-starvation period during the experiment, but it took a lot longer than it did to regain their body fat. And so what happened is that when they did hit that 100% mark <clears throat> for gaining their muscle back, they had continued to regain body fat as well and gained more body fat than they had previously. And so they ended up at, according to this report, nearly 180% of the body fat that they had prior to this study. And therefore, on average, they were at a higher weight following this study than they were before the study was. Again, something that we see frequently with low-calorie diets. People end up not only regaining the weight that they lost, but more than that. This is really kind of a clinical exemplification of this phenomena and why it happens. So that is the Minnesota starvation experiment 
very, very quickly, very, you know, high level overview. Um, who knew that 1400 pages could be covered that quickly? I didn't. <laughs> but that is, this was really a, a very important um, study, not just in terms of, you know, its usefulness at that point in time in understanding the impacts of starvation on the human body and how to rehabilitate somebody from the brink of starvation, but also continues to be useful today in showing the impact of slashing calories on the human body as well. So we talked about the fact that their calories were decreased dramatically to a semi-starvation rate. I'm going to give you one second here as I'm recording. Take a guess to yourself. How many calories do you think these study participants were consuming during that starvation period? Take a guess to yourself here. How many calories do you think were included in that starvation period? All right, do you have a guess? Hold it in your head because I'm going to tell you right now. During the starvation period of this study, these participants were given 1,570 calories a day. 1,570 calories a day. That's roughly what they were given. And with that, had these dramatic impacts on their body and on their psychology as well. Now, how many calories does the average low calorie diet allow you to have? Answer, 1,200 calories a day. So the average low calorie diet has you consuming fewer calories than was included in a starvation study. And we wonder why we have such a difficult time sticking to 1,200 calorie diets and we regain the weight afterwards. So we're going to talk about that next. Okay, so we've covered the Minnesota starvation experiment and that has I think very clearly demonstrated um, just how even 1,500 calories isn't enough for an adult to live off of, even a female adult. And yet, there is still immense popularity for low-calorie diets, which tend to put you in the 1,000 to 1,200 calorie range. And these aren't new. Like this has been around for a really long time in spite of mounds and mounds of evidence of their ineffectiveness. So where did we get this from? Where did 1,200 calories even come from? Well, it's older than you think. Well, maybe not. Maybe you know this. We'll find out. <laughs> so first of all, when did calorie counting first emerge? So keep in mind, that you know, we still we, we had to figure out what calories were, right? We had to, some some scientists had to discover what calories were, and you know, start writing and theorizing about them. So calorie counting um, with regards to human consumption and human um, metabolism really kind of emerged in the late 19th century in Europe, uh, particularly in Germany. 
Um, so that's kind of like where it originated from. People started studying, you know, how many calories do we burn versus how many calories do we consume? And that was kind of the beginning of it. And it wasn't as big of a deal in Europe as it was here in the US. It really got popular as something that can be manipulated here in the US. And the first time that it really became a big deal in terms of counting calories in order to lose weight was around 1918. So 1918 was when a woman named Dr. Lulu Hunt Peters published a book called Diet and Health with Key to the Calories. And in this book, first of all, this was one of the first diet books in history. And it was a bestseller. It's on the bestseller list for two years. Um, so not only one of the first diet books, the first best-selling diet book. Um, and in this book, she suggested that we count calories in order to lose weight. And you know, she included information based on, you know, a lot of the research that she had done, you know, she incorporated a list of foods that were estimated to only have 100 calories. And the essential premise was basically eat whatever you want, as long as you eat less than 1200 calories a day. So wasn't really interested in the quality of the food, wasn't really interested in, you know, the nutritional specifics, but as long as you eat less than 1200 calories a day, then you're fine. Eat, eat whatever it is, as long as you're under that 1200 calorie a day. So that was really the beginning for what has become a really, really huge uh, sector of the diet industry. So it became a bestseller. It stayed on the bestseller list. You can actually still buy this book. I actually found it on Amazon. So it's like still out there. Um, and since then, this has kind of spawned a whole variety of a number of other low calorie diets. Some actually putting themselves out there as 1200 calorie diets and others being more discreet about it. So Weight Watchers is a great example of a 1200 calorie diet that is actually kind of hiding the 1200 calorie part behind this complex point system, but it is a low calorie diet. Um, other popular diets, you know, Noom would be considered a low calorie diet, contrary to what their advertising tells you. Um, so there's a lot of different pr um, products or diet plans out there that are 1200 calorie diets, either blatantly or kind of with some fancy decoration on it. Um, maybe not intentionally to hide that it's a 1200 calorie diet, but the, this day and age, it's definitely... I'd say more intentional to hide it because of the backlash to these 1200 calorie diets that has been growing in recent years. And right now, like literally this instant, if you were to go online and Google 1200 calorie diet, oh my gosh, I have a droid. And um, so the, the trigger word is okay, Google. And it just turned on. It did it again. Ah, our technology is always listening. Anyway, so if you were to go on um, and search for 1200 calorie diet, you would get literally pages and pages of hits like 1200 calorie a day menu, 1200 calorie meal plan, how to eat 1200 calories a day, 1200 calorie a day recipes. It's just one after another, after another pages and pages and pages of, of hits, not, you know, 
the history of 1200 calorie diets. Like I was looking up not, you know, are 1200 calorie diets good for you? Just literally all of these different resources to help you do a 1200 calorie diet is what comes up when you search for that online. So clearly it's still a really big thing. And what is really remarkable about this is the fact that we have mounds of evidence that these 1200 calorie diets are not effective. So let's talk a little bit about what it is about these diets that makes them so problematic. So the first and I think the most blatant issue with these low calorie diets is it's simply not enough food for an adult to live off of. <laughs> I'm sure by now you've seen on either whether you're on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or whatever, um, now it's kind of become a meme or like there's all kinds of videos and everything about how 1200 calories is the number of calories that a toddler is recommended to eat in a day not an adult human doing adult human things. So obviously we have that first issue where it's simply not enough food for an adult to be consuming uh, to fuel their bodies for a day. And I think the Minnesota starvation experiment really highlights just how, how true that is, right? If 1500 calories was enough to slow down the metabolisms of grown men, make them lose both lean and fat mass, and obsess over food, clearly 1,200 calories is definitely not enough for a grown adult. And the impacts would be even more dramatic than we saw with this experiment with these grown men eating 1,500 calories a day. Because don't forget, it's not that, you know, typically we don't see people just doing the 1200 calorie diet, right? We also see them exercising as well because that's what's been drilled into our heads. Eat less, exercise more, fewer calories in, more calories out, right? And that's simply, it's way too simple, right? <laughs> we are way more complicated than that. As I've said before, weight loss and weight gain is not a simple matter of calories in calories out it is so much more complicated than that so that's really the first thing is first of all it's not enough food and second of all it completely misses how incredibly complicated human beings are and the fact that weight gain and weight loss are a lot more complicated than just calories in calories out so two big issues right there kind of stemming off of the issue of it not being enough food it's not sustainable Right. And this is why we see people who, you know, maybe they're able to do the diet for a certain number of days or a certain amount of time, but then it can only go on for so long. And it's a battle every single day not to binge eat, not to overeat, not to eat the wrong foods, because our bodies are literally fighting what they are perceiving as starvation. They're not registering that we're deliberately doing it to ourselves. They're literally trying to survive. And so it is both part of our physical and our mental instincts to obsess over and seek out food in response to this extreme calorie restriction here. So it's not sustainable, no matter what you do, a 1200 calorie diet is not going to be sustainable because your body is going to be fighting you tooth and nail every step of the way. We're human beings. We don't respond well to deprivation. We definitely don't respond well to starvation. So while you're not going to starve to death on a 1200 calorie diet, 
you're not going to be able to do it for any significantly long period of time. And as soon as you start eating normally again, you're going to regain that weight and you are going to regain more than you lost most likely. And that's what we see with the data, right? We see that the vast majority, at least 90% of dieters regain the weight that they've lost. And the majority of those who regain gain even more than they lost. And that, as we saw with the Minnesota starvation experiment is to be expected of our physiology. It's a normal response to this type of extreme calorie restriction. So not only is it not sustainable, they're not effective, right? And I I can't remember if I've talked about this on this podcast or not, but we hear the refrain all the time that diets don't work. And I think that's giving diets way too much credit to say that diets don't work because that assumes that the whole purpose of diets is sustained weight loss when it clearly isn't. It can't be because we know that they are not a solution for sustained weight loss. Diets do exactly what they're designed to do. They're designed to get you to lose weight quickly. They are not designed to help you keep that weight off. And they're definitely, definitely not designed to teach you healthier eating habits or sustainable eating habits in any sense (laughs) um, of the imagination here. The other thing that we know about these low calorie diets is what they do result in not being sustained weight loss is weight cycling, right? We see people, they're on the diet, off the diet, on the diet, off the diet. Maybe they're on different iterations of a different diet and they gain weight and they lose it and they gain it and they lose it. And what we know is that the process of gaining and losing weight over and over again is actually far more detrimental to our health than just being considered overweight, you know, based on your, your BMI or what have you. It's a much greater risk factor for cardiac issues. People who weight cycle live a shorter period, don't live as long. There we go. (laughs) People who weight cycle have a shorter lifespan than people who do not, even if those people are considered overweight or obese. Those people that are weight cycling are the ones that live shorter lives. They are more likely to have more health issues than somebody who does not weight cycle. So that's another huge issue with these 1200 calorie diets, because the outcome most of the time is this weight cycling. So by extension, you could definitely say these are 1200 calories are bad for your health. 1200 calorie diets, I should say. And, you know, I think just looking at like the physical effects that you have from eating a 1200 calorie diet as you're doing it show that it's not good for your health, right? Thinning hair is a very common complaint with 1200 calorie diets. We'll just say low calorie diets, right? Because typically you're not able to eat enough nutrients to meet your body's needs, right? Particularly when it comes to protein. So that's a huge issue, right? Um, You know, and you know, when it comes to supplementation, a lot of people don't take supplements when they're on these diets or the other issue is we don't absorb the form the supplement form of nutrients as well as we do the form you know if we're if we're taking it in through eating whole foods so your absorption rate isn't going to be as good either if you were trying to supplement anyway so we know that these diets are not sustainable we know that they do not result in lasting weight loss we know that they do create ongoing health problems 
and yet we continue to do these things. These are things that are told, recommended by physicians to their patients, right? If a medication had the failure rate that low-calorie diets had, it wouldn't be on the market, let alone being prescribed. And yet, <laughs> we have these diets being recommended left, right, and center for people. And I think what is the most nefarious aspect of this is that when those diets don't work, when we inevitably regain the weight, when we inevitably cannot sustain those eating habits, we're, we're blamed for it. We're told that it's our fault. If we only had more willpower, if we only had more self-control, this whole slew of negativity and just really false accusations that come with the, I don't even want to use the word failure, but the, the inevitable outcome, we'll say, of these low calorie diets. And I think that's the worst part of it because instead of showing that this is a plan that does not work, that we know does not work and will not work, we blame the individual for it and we tear people down for it. We make them feel as though they are defective for not being able to stick to this plan, to lose the weight, to keep the weight off, when we literally are staring at mountains of evidence that our basic human physiology is going to be fighting against these types of measures tooth and nail. And that I think is, yeah, I think that's so much more harmful. Um, this, this blaming of the individual for a diet's failure when we're not failing. <laughs> the, the diet industry is failing us. The wellness industry is failing us. So that is the Minnesota starvation experiment and a little information about low calorie diets. Next up is our myths busted section. And this week I want to talk about food addiction. So we hear about this a lot. People saying, you know, they, they can't help themselves. They're addicted to food or they're addicted to a specific food. We hear it a lot with sugar. Um, so is this a thing? Can you be addicted to food? Can you be addicted to sugar? And I'm not going to give you the short answer because you'll stop listening. So I'm going to give you the long answer. <laughs> so no, the short answer is no, you cannot be addicted to food. So there is no, and this has been studied. There have been a number of studies done. And the fact of the matter is that there is no good, hard, scientific evidence of food addiction. Okay. There is no science behind this assertion that a person is addicted to food in general or a given food, right? But it can feel like we are, we are addicted, right? Particularly if we are experiencing this inability to regulate our consumption of food or a certain food, 
overeating or binging even, feeling like we just can't resist certain foods when they're put in front of us, feeling like we can't stop eating those foods once we start having them, right? Or when we're experiencing like super intense cravings for food or certain foods, right? It can feel like, oh my gosh, this must be addiction. But I think there's actually something else happening and there is science to back this up. So what is actually happening here? Basically, in essence, what is happening is a very normal human reaction to deprivation and restriction. Just like we just talked about with, you know, these low calorie diets. If you think about it, when somebody tells you something is off limits, what happens? If somebody says you can't have whatever, what, what's your immediate knee-jerk response? You want it more, right? If somebody says you can't have that, you're like, oh, well, I friggin' want it then, right? So it's this normal human response to being told no. It's partly this ingrained psychological desire to enforce our boundaries and enforce our autonomy. But then also when we're told that we can no longer have something, it becomes even more powerful. And that's when we see these, this phenomena of last supper eating that I mentioned earlier, right? Because when we finally are faced with it, we eat as much of it as we can, as quickly as we can, because we don't know when the next time we are able to have it will be either because we're no, we know we're starting another diet or because we have deemed it off limits to ourselves. So we restrict our consumption of it frequently. And so really what we are experiencing as food addiction is a normal reaction to being told, no, you can't have that. Whether we're telling ourselves that or whether it's because we're on a certain diet plan or, or what have you. Now, some might say, well, you know, there have been studies that show, you know, eating particularly sugar shows the pleasure centers in your brain lighting up and it triggers a dopamine release. So dopamine is also involved in like cocaine addiction. So this must be evidence of addiction. Yeah, it's true, right? Eating foods that you enjoy can result in the release of dopamine in your brain. But you know what else does? Hiking, socializing with your friends, listening to music. All of those things trigger a dopamine response in your brain, but we don't talk about being addicted to those things, right? Just food and sugar, right? So just because it's something that your brain finds pleasurable and triggers it to release feel-good hormones doesn't automatically mean that it's an addiction or that that is a symptom of addiction. What food addiction is is something that we've created to describe our human tendency not to respond to deprivation particularly well and basically to kind of make an excuse for the, the system that creates that deprivation, right? The diet industry has really made up this concept of food addiction to cover up the fact that <laughs> it's those types of diet plans that make us behave in that way, right? They've convinced us once again that it's, there's something wrong with us it's not something wrong with the diet plan itself. It's just we don't have the willpower or we're an addict or something along those lines that is causing this kind of behavior. It's definitely not the diet plan. So food addiction, myths busted. It is not a thing. 
And if you are feeling as though you are addicted to a certain food or addicted to food in general, what I would say is take a step back and notice a few things about that situation. Do you regularly restrict how much food you are able to consume? Do you restrict which foods you allow yourself to consume? Are there like special occasion foods you can only have like once a year? Do you restrict the number of servings you're allowed to have in a meal? And when you are engaging in the overeating behavior that you have dubbed addiction, what's going on? in your head? What's going on in those circumstances? Are you berating yourself as you're doing that? Are you thinking I'm being so bad? I'm not supposed to have this, right? I hate that. I'm being so bad. I hear that all the time from people, right? Are you thinking thoughts like that? And if the answer is yes, if the answer to the questions about restricting are yes, then that I think what you actually need to do is look at your relationship with food as a whole and look at the way that you're restricting those foods rather than trying to curtail your quote unquote addiction to food because it's not going to go away as long as you continue to restrict those foods. What will make that behavior go away is starting to treat those foods or food in general as just something every day. Take the novelty away from it and you take its power over you away from it. Give yourself unconditional permission to eat the foods that you want to eat when you want to eat them and you take their power away and you're back in the driver's seat. So that's what I would recommend if you believe that you have a food addiction of some sort. So that does it for this week's episode of the Well and Simple podcast. As always, thank you for listening. Um, If you are enjoying this podcast, I ask that you please like, follow, and review this podcast on whatever your favorite podcasting platform is. It'll help me get the word out to even more listeners about this podcast. Also, if you have a topic you want to hear discussed, if you have a story you want to share, please email wellandsimplepodcast at gmail.com and I would love to hear from you and share your listener stories, your questions, comments on a future episode of the podcast. Remember to tune in every Wednesday for new episodes. Thanks for listening. Thank you.